The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. I plead to the jury tonight to think a little bit about the island that we have been on. This island is pretty much full of only two things, snakes and rats. And in the end of Mother Nature, we have Richard the Snake, who knowingly went after prey, and Kelly, who turned into the rat that ran around like the rats do on this island, trying to run from the snake. I feel we owe it to the island's spirits that we have learned to come to know, to let it be in the end the way Mother Nature intended it to be, for the snake to eat the rat. That's Sue Hawk on the finale of the first season of Survivor, teaching us an important lesson about life on a deserted island. When thinking about someone stranded on a desert island, we might focus on the individual. Does he or she have the physical abilities and mental strength sufficient to survive? But along with that focus on the individual, we also learn important lessons about society. What do people miss when society is absent? How do they adapt to being apart from the structures in which they grew up? What's it like when they return from isolation? Or if they forge a new one in their new home? Solitude, society or its absence, and adventure. The classic desert island story. And this is true, whether it's a handful of people on a reality television show, or whether it's a single individual, which is how it was for the hero of what may have been the very first novel written in English. Or at least, it's how it was for 27 years, until he famously chanced upon a human footprint on the beach. But is that how things were for the historical Robinson Crusoe, the Scottish sailor who was stranded on a desert island for nearly five years, and who served as one of the inspirations for Daniel Defoe's famous tale? Let's find out. We're talking about Robinson Crusoe today on the History of Literature. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Jack Wilson. We have a great episode today, Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. Defoe's a fascinating subject all to himself, a great writer in a range of genres, an active political agitator, probably the first English novelist, and a paid spy. He had a lot of kids and wrote a lot of books using something like 200 pseudonyms, sorry, pseudonyms. And this book, Robinson Crusoe, was a smash hit in its day and has been read and abridged and summarized for children and adapted for film and television and copied and criticized ever since. In 1776, the great man of letters, Dr. Johnson, said, quote, Was there ever yet anything written by mere man that was wished longer by its readers, excepting Don Quixote, The Pilgrim's Progress, and Robinson Crusoe? End quote. In the 19th century, Charles Dickens took a different stance, saying that Robinson Crusoe is, quote, the only instance of a universally popular book that could make no one laugh and could make no one cry. End quote. In the 21st century, The Guardian came out with a list of the 100 best novels written in English. Robinson Crusoe, 
ranked second. Our protagonist is one of those fascinating literary myths, like the one we saw in last week's episode on Faust, a character that takes over, takes on its own life, independent from the original text. And we'll be asking some of the same questions. How did this myth get started? What themes does it explore? And what does it mean for us today? But first, let's sell some fish. Gar, do we have that news theme? Yes, news and a correction from last week's news. Okay, good. Oh, wait. What happened? What happened to the chimpanzees? I thought that was part of it now. No? Okay, fine. Let's move on. So we've been running this promotion in which you do something good. Thanks, Gar. That's good closure. So we've been running this promotion in which you do something good for the podcast. You tell your friends about it. You write a review. Rank it on iTunes. Anything at all, really. Or... Even don't bother. Maybe all you have room for in your busy schedule is to listen and smile and nod along. I'm not asking for much. I'm really trying to give away prizes because that's the fun part. I like sending mail. And don't you like getting it? Come on. I know you probably cut down on your magazine subscriptions because of the internet. And you probably cut down on your letter writing because of email. And people have certainly cut down on writing letters to you. What do you get these days? Bills and junk mail, a birthday card once a year or so, <laughs> or so, once a year or so, for a birthday card? Who wrote this? Anyway, I've got the answer. A special treat from the History of Literature podcast, just for you. Don't worry, I'm not collecting these addresses for any other reason other than to send you a special literary postcard with a hand-selected quotation from me. Jack Wilson, on the back. I'm not very arts and craftsy, but luckily I don't need to be because these cards I bought are pretty spectacular. So, as my thank you to you, the listeners, I'm giving them away. I'm numbering them so you can know that they are individualized. Nobody will ever have one just like yours. A collector's item. Let's check in with one of last week's winners, Kitu in Canada, who writes, Hello, Jack. I was so excited by your shout-out this morning. Wow, Langston Hughes is my favorite poet. I love the poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo, and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. It gives me chills every time I read it. It's so beautiful. Thank you so much. You really made my morning. Now, let me just insert here that I've sent Kitu a postcard with a, with a drawing of her favorite poem. What a great piece of karma that is. How lucky. It's got that quote, too. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I hope she enjoys it. Now, she goes on to write, I think you're curious about who your listeners are, so I'm an international student from India studying in a Canadian university. 
I live alone, so I related to your anecdote of living alone in Taiwan on a personal level. I have mountains of books in my apartment, too. Your podcast was exactly what I needed, a friendly voice to lift me out of my occasional bouts of loneliness. The city I'm living in at the moment... I won't say the name of the city. The city I'm living in at the moment has hidden forests, gardens, lion statues, and orchards. It feels like the setting of Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. This is Keatu might be the ideal listener to this podcast. She's living in the, she's living in the setting of Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. She says, "This is why I'm going to move into a place with a garden for the summer." The place. <laughs> She goes on, she gets a little specific. The place she's living happens to be, also have another literary reference to uh, a play in Shakespeare. She says, when I took a bus to view this rental, I listened to your episode on Othello. This created the most beautiful Shakespearean atmosphere. It was on a beautiful Canadian snowy night. Thanks again for the postcard. P.S. I'm a woman. Kind regards, Kitu. There's the correction right there in the P.S. I think I referred to Kitu as a he and not a she last time. Kitu, my apologies for the error. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Oh, wait, wait. (laughs) I didn't mean to say that. Don't go. I can't believe I signed off. Please come back. Everyone who thought I was finished with the podcast, please come back. I didn't mean to say that. Did we lose anyone, Gar? What are you... Hmm? What are you going to the computer for? Checking the stats? No, no, no. Gar, you, you can't check the stats to find out if people have left. We're not we're not a live show. Oh man. That explains so much that you think that. Hmm? You knew it, but you forgot. Okay. That is just incredible, Gar. Wondrous, even in a long career of wondrousness, is one wondrous, wondrouses, wondrousness is is. No, I was asking if you thought we lost anyone. Sort of a rhetorical question because I said my usual sign off. Did you hear that? Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. No, 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 Gar, Gar, stop the theme, stop the theme song. We need to have. Uh, we have a lot of show left. We haven't. With car stop. We haven't even started. Are you still there? Good. That was just to clear out the riffraff. Hardcore listeners only. Seriously. Sign up for these postcards. They're going fast. Okay, we're sponsored today by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash HOL. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash HOL. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite 
of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Do we have some island music? Of course we do. story in Scotland with a young boy who can't get along with his parents or anyone else. We're in the late 1600s now, and the boy's name is Alexander Selcraig, later changed to Selkirk. Alex is a tough kid, the seventh son in a large family, and trouble follows him. Trouble at home, trouble at church. Fights, vandalism, he's out of control. Alex has dreams of going to sea, which is a funny dream for a kid like Alex to have. On the one hand, it must seem like freedom. Escape from a small town and an oppressive family and the rules and morality imposed by the powerful local church. On the other hand, what might get lost in the dreams of vast oceans and infinite possibilities is that a ship is a society in miniature, and a crowded one at that. And the whole thing is governed by a captain with absolute power who needs to rule as a dictator. Maybe a benevolent one, but a dictator nonetheless. As we'll see, in retrospect, this will turn out to be a disastrous choice for a social malcontent like Alexander Selkirk, but we're not there yet. So his mother supports his dreams, or maybe she's excited about getting him out of town, but his father wants him to stay and help work in the family trade, a tannery and shoemaking business. The parents actually fought so much about this that the father threatened to disinherit Alex. So one day in 1695, when Alex is 18, he's supposed to appear before the church elders for punishment due to, quote, undue carriage in church. Instead, the records show that he missed the meeting, having gone away to see. Whatever he did must have been bad enough not to excuse, for they merely postponed his punishment until he returned. Can you imagine a church like that? The church that says, You acted up in church, so get in here to face the punishment. Oh, you went off to sea? Well, we'll see you when you get back. What a grip that would have on a small town. We don't forgive. We don't forget. Have fun at sea. We'll be here. Anyway, off he went probably on a colonizing expedition to what is now Panama. Six years later, 
The records show he was back in church in trouble for something new. It seems that poor Alex, when he returned from his voyage, was hanging around with his family. He mistakenly drank some salt water out of a container. Maybe he was the victim of a prank. We're not sure. His younger brother, Andrew, started laughing. Enraged, Alex attacked Andrew with a wooden stick. And as his family all piled on in defense, Alex ended up assaulting his father, his brother John, and John's wife, Margaret. Days after that, he appeared in church. He was berated in front of the congregation, and he claimed to be repentant, and he was dismissed. Our next sighting of him comes a year or so later, when he signed up for a voyage with a bunch of privateers, including a buccaneer named William Dampier, who were headed to South America. Privateer, of course, is a species of pirate. They received licenses from the government to go and disrupt commercial shipping of enemy nations. They acted like pirates. They lived like pirates. And in this case, even though William Dampier had some prestige as the first man to circumnavigate the globe three times, they were doomed like pirates. This was a doomed voyage from the beginning. If Alex was running from restrictions... He could not have found a worse place to go. The signs were there from the beginning. Dampier's voyage, which had two ships, Selkirk as the navigator of one of them, set out. One of them, one of the ships had five times as many men as it could comfortably accommodate. Ostensibly, this could be read as a sign of optimism. The idea being that they were going to capture a bunch of ships and break off the cruise to sail the bounty home. But having this many men also was an acknowledgement that many of the men would die from disease or in battle, and many others would desert. And who could blame the deserters? Packed in there like that with disease and fights and dissension, almost inevitable. On their first night, the very first night that they set sail, Captain Dampier became drunk and fought with another officer. Just weeks after they began, by October, the men were sick of the rations. By, no- by November, 15 men had fever, and scurvy had set in. By late November, one of the captains died, and the command was given to Thomas Stradling, a lieutenant who was hated by the crew. He was 21 years old. 21 years old. Probably about the age of the younger brother that Alex had beaten up for laughing at him when he accidentally drank the salt water. Maybe even younger. And now Alex is taking orders from this man. On a leaky vessel with mildewed bedding, an incubator for typhus, dysentery, and cholera. The meat and grain became infested with roaches and rat droppings. Mutiny, brood, was simmering. They reached the bottom of South America and rounded Cape Horn. The two ships lost sight of each other for a while. And then, just as Captain Stradling's men were about to mutiny against him, Dampier arrived with the other ship and put down the mutiny by implementing even more discipline. Now the crew hated both captains. The sailors were unhappy, diseased, hungry, miserable, tired. They wanted to attack more ships. They were hungry for the plunder probably for the fresh stores of food and water as much as the booty, though no doubt they were hungry for that as well. And then, 
The two captains, the cocky young 21-year-old Stradling and the enterprising hothead Dampier, themselves got into a fight. Here's how a later biographer described it. Quote, Stradling rounded on Dampier, called him a drunk who marooned his officers, stole treasure, hid behind blankets and beds when it came time to fight, took bribes, boasted of impossible prizes, and when there was plunder to hand, let it go. Of all those charges, the one I like the best is that Captain Dampier hid behind blankets and beds when it came time to fight. A drunk, a treasure thief, a braggart, well, that's just good pirating. But hiding behind blankets and beds as a captain? How do you squirrel yourself away like that and hope? Nobody notices. You call for your men to attack and then go hide somewhere in the ship? I cannot stop thinking about this pirate captain hiding behind blankets. Was he ashamed of his fear? Was he down there thinking, I wish I had the courage to be doing something else, something more manly and worthy of my position as captain? Or was he down there thinking, hey, this is what all the smart people do. Save your skin. Find a few blankets to hide behind. Or was he not thinking about anything at all? Just down there, reflexively like a mouse in his hole, his eyes darting, waiting for his next impulse to kick in. So that's Captain Dampier. The other captain, Stradling, was awful. The ship separated. Our man, Alex, was with Stradling, and he hated him. The ship leaked so badly that the water needed to be pumped out day and night. The wood was infested with worms. Alex and others believed that the masts and flooring were unstable and needed immediate repair. Nevertheless, they managed to do some pirating for a few months. And then finally, a year after they first set sail, they stopped at an island west of South America. It was secluded. Nobody lived there. The men could rest and stock up on turnips and goats and crayfish. And they did. It must have felt like a huge relief to have this leaky, unseaworthy ship moored at this island. I'm inclined to think that Alex and the others really didn't want to leave. They may even have felt like they were going to stay longer than they actually did. After all, nobody was repairing the ship while they were there, and with all those worms eating the wood, only a fool would decide to leave the island and head back to sea. And then, the 21-year-old Captain Stradling announced it was time to leave the island and head back to sea. Alex argued with him, and the exchange grew heated. It was in front of the crew, and finally, Stradling said that if Alex wanted to stay on the island, he could stay on the island. He may have felt he had no choice but to announce that to Alex. Alex shouted to the rest of the crew that this was all lunacy. The ship could never last in the open water. He invited them all to join him on the island, straddling put Alex ashore, and this is the pathetic part. Nobody followed. It appears that Alex thought he might be leading a grand insurrection. Instead, he was suddenly faced with the prospects of being all alone on this island. The ship started to pull away. I imagine a few people laughed and waved, and Alex, poor Alex, changed his mind immediately. He was filled with regret and fear. 
He went wading back to the ship, screaming to be allowed back on the boat. Straddling refused, enjoying the moment. Was Straddling sadistic? Or did he believe that he was setting a good example? Telling his men that there would be no more mutinies? Because look how this arrogant navigator begs for mercy. Don't be like him. Finally, Alex gave up. He turned around and waded toward shore. Was his pride setting in? His sense of futility? We're not sure. Here's what he had. Here's what we do know. He had with him bedding, a musket, a pistol, gunpowder, a hatchet and knife, his navigation tools, a pot for boiling food, two pounds of tobacco, some cheese and jam, a flask of rum, and his Bible. Not awful, especially if another ship were to swing by in a few days, as he expected. And then he didn't see a friendly ship for four years and four months. He was alone. There was no companion Friday, and even in Robinson Crusoe, Friday doesn't show up until year 28 of his stay on the island. So there's Alex, all alone. It's a test of solitude. His hair and beard grew out, because why cut it? At night, elephant seals, some weighing two tons, howled, a sound unlike any he had ever heard. Storms raged, trees snapped, feral cats roamed and fought with the hordes of rats that had come from European ships and multiplied into great armies of rats that attacked his supplies and tore at his clothing and feet as he slept. Daytime must have been better. He could read his Bible and look out at the horizon, hoping to see a friendly ship. Once he saw a ship that turned out to be Spanish, an enemy, and he had to run up a tree to escape from being enslaved by them. The Spanish were known for stealing men like Alex and torturing them and sending them to work in South American gold mines. Alex seems to have eaten well. He liked the island's crayfish, which were like lobsters without claws. And he grew so fast as a runner that he could run down a goat. And his feet grew so hard and calloused that he no longer needed shoes. Here, finally, is his departure from his father and the shoemaking business. Alex liked making a goat broth with turnips, watercress, and cabbage palm, seasoned with black pimento pepper. He was kind of a foodie, really. That's a lot of ingredients to prepare for one dish, but I guess he had time on his hands. The tobacco and alcohol ran out, of course. Instead, he had berries that he found and a Bible and a newfound love of nature. He marveled at the hummingbirds and turtles, fascinated him, and he could climb to a high point on the island and gaze out at the sea, hoping to see friendly ships. If it was a Spanish ship, of course, he would need to quickly run back down the mud trail and extinguish his fires so they wouldn't see the smoke. But all in all, it must have been an amazing experience to be surrounded by all of that nature. Now, eventually he was rescued. We're going to skip over his rescue and his return to Scotland, other than to note the irony of being rescued by a ship that was then being navigated by the former Captain William Dampier. 
recognizing something in this new resourceful Alex, the man who had survived, the man who had lived alone without going insane, the man who had developed himself, had become sort of a changed man due to his experience, due to his solitude. The captain of the ship that discovered them fired William Dampier and made Alex the navigator instead. Dampier now was the drunkard, the fighter, the lout. And Alex was revered after they cut his hair and shaved his beard. He carried that respect and a kind of uneasy celebrity back with him to England, where he wandered from pub to pub in London, telling tales to his fans and admirers, the the curious, in exchange for free meals and pints of beer. Finally, the celebrity wore off, and he wound up back in Scotland with his family again, except now things had changed. He couldn't live in the house. He built himself a cave in the backyard, a cave like the one he had had on his island. Finally, he reverted to the habits that society had imposed upon him. Even this better, better adjusted philosophical man started drinking and getting in fights just like the old days. And then at age 44, he signed up for the Navy, trying to return to his glory as a sailor, if you could call it glory. But there was no glory. He was killed by fever, and his body was dumped into the sea. Solitude again, and perhaps a final escape into freedom. Alex's story and a handful of other similar narratives fired up the imagination of the island nations in Britain. In 1782, the poet William Cooper wrote a famous poem called Verses Supposed to be Written by Alexander Selkirk During His Solitary Abode. The poem imagines the solitude of Alexander as producing an almost hallucinatory longing for society. The poem has a famous beginning. I am monarch of all I survey. My right there is none to dispute. From the center all round to the sea, I am lord of the fowl and the brute. I am the monarch of all I survey. That's what fires the imagination. There are a few things, actually. When people were thinking about Alexander Selkirk and his time on the island, one is, can you survive? That's what drew us all to Survivor the first time around. Could you build a fire? If that were you, figure out what to eat, catch fish, build a hut, fight off wild animals. Was all that in you to do that? You with your your staid life? You who live in civilization? Would you have the skills to survive if you were all alone? The second thing is how do you adapt? How do you live without a church to go to or a market or the company of family and friends and neighbors? Today we might wonder, how would you live without the internet? An email. Could you find ways to entertain yourself? If you had nothing, how much could you endure being inside your own head with no other company, no one to talk to, and very few distractions? And then the third thing that appeals to us makes us wonder. You are the king, the boss. Nobody tells you what to do. You set your schedule, 
You devise your realm exactly how you want it. My five-year-old must have felt something like this. He shouted this phrase once as his mother scooped him off the playground and hauled him to the car. He was squirming in her arms, insisting on some more hours of playtime. His independence threatened by her overruling his will. I was in the driver's seat, the engine running, air conditioner blasting. As she opened the back door and situated him in the back seat, I am the king of all that I survey, he shouted, just as she buckled him into his car seat. I don't know where he had heard that phrase, probably some cartoon. But I was struck by how uh, inappropriate it was for him. I am the king of all that I survey. Click. (laughs) Buckled in. We all feel that way, don't we? Feel that reversal of fortune. Feel the the impulse to think we're the monarchs. We're the kings of all that we survey. I own this house. Well, except for what I owe the bank. Or, I'm out of college. Free at last. I set my own terms now. And the world says, ha ha. We see things a little differently. But, if you're on a desert island... There are no exceptions, no qualifiers. You rule to the extent a human can. Can you handle it? Is it as pleasurable as it seems? Hell is other people, said Sartre. But is being alone, truly alone, a form of heaven? Don't prisoners in solitary confinement? Okay, admittedly, that's in a darker circumstances than... uh, on a beautiful natural setting like a tropical island. But don't prisoners in solitary confinement go insane? Are you sure that isn't what would happen to you if you were on this island? In any case, the story of Alexander Selkirk struck the imagination of Daniel Defoe, a wildly prolific writer who never found a subject that he couldn't write about for money. Defoe doesn't seem to have met Selkirk, as far as we know, but he probably knew people who had... They were in the same general circumstances and area. And anyway, there were plenty of accounts to draw from, as well as other accounts of people stranded on islands and island life. Defoe wrote up a story about a man he imagined being on a desert island for 28 years. He called it The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner who lived eight and twenty years all alone in an uninhabited island on the coast of America, near the mouth of the great river of Orunuk, having been cast on shore by shipwreck, wherein all the men perished but himself, with an account how he was at last as strangely delivered by pirates. That's the title, or as we call it now, Robinson Crusoe. It's often claimed to be the first novel written in English, so perhaps we can give Defoe a break on the title. How did he know that two words would work better than 65? Should we read it again? Think of Defoe, a hack, writing whatever he can for money, probably trying to market the book. The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner, who lived eight and twenty years all alone in an uninhabited island on the coast of America near the mouth of the great river of Orinuk, having been cast on shore by shipwreck, 
wherein all the men perished but himself, with an account of how he was at last as strangely delivered by pirates. <laughs> he gets the pirates in there. It's like he forgot. That's the second sentence in the title. The title has one long first sentence and then a second sentence. Because I think Defoe probably thought, hey, I got to sell this thing. I left out the best part. In any case, so he did something right. It was an immediate sensation translated into multiple languages and has been read ever since. The scene where Crusoe, who's been stranded for 27 years, sees a footprint on the sand, a human footprint, and knows that he is not alone on the island, has become one of the most famous scenes in all of literature. And Crusoe himself, the solitary man forced to survive and developing what we now view as, at best, a highly anachronistic relationship with Friday, and at worst, an emblem of racist colonialistic imperialism. Either way, for better or worse, Robinson Crusoe and Friday are in the pantheon of literary pairs, along with Huck and Jim, Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, Holmes and Watson, or adventurers like Batman and Robin, or the Lone Ranger and Tonto. Here's the footprint scene to give you a flavor of Defoe's very readable prose and his methods for building suspense. It happened one day about noon, going towards my boat. I was exceedingly surprised with the print of a man's naked foot on the shore, which was very plain to be seen in the sand. I stood like one thunderstruck, or as if I had seen an apparition. I listened. I looked round me. I could hear nothing, nor see anything. I went up to a rising ground to look farther. I went up the shore and down the shore, but it was all one. I could see no other impression but that one. I went to it again to see if there were any more, and to observe if it might not be my fancy. But there was no room for that, for there was exactly the very print of a foot, toes, heel, and every part of a foot. How it came there I knew not, nor could in the least imagine, but after innumerable fluttering thoughts, like a man perfectly confused and out of myself, I came home to my fortification, not feeling, as we say, the ground I went on, but terrified to the last degree, looking behind me at every two or three steps, mistaking every bush and tree, and fancying every stump at a distance, to be a man. Nor is it possible to describe how many various shapes a frighted imagination represented things to me in, how many wild ideas were found every moment in my fancy, and what strange, unaccountable whimsies came into my thoughts, by the way. When I came to my castle, for so I think I called it ever after this, I fled into it like one pursued, whether I went over by the ladder as first contrived, or went in at the hole in the rock which I called a door. I cannot remember. No, nor could I remember the next morning, for never frighted hare fled to cover or fox to earth with more terror of mind than I to this retreat. I slept none that night. The farther I was from the occasion of my fright, the greater my apprehensions were, which is something contrary to the nature of such things, and especially to the usual practice of all creatures in fear. 
but I was so embarrassed with my own frightful ideas of the thing that I formed nothing but dismal imaginations to myself, even though I was now a great way off of it. Sometimes I fancied it must be the devil, and reason joined in with me upon this supposition, for how should any other thing in human shape come into the place? Where was the vessel that brought them? What marks was there of any other footsteps? And how was it possible a man should come there? In the middle of these cogitations, apprehensions, and reflections, it came into my thought one day that all this might be a mere chimera of my own, and that this foot might be the print of my own foot when I came on shore from my boat. This cheered me up a little too, and I began to persuade myself it was all a delusion, that it was nothing else but my own foot, and why might not I come that way from the boat as well as I was going that way to the boat? Again, I considered also that I could by no means tell for certain where I had trod and where I had not, and that if at last this was only the print of my own foot, I had played the part of those fools who strive to make stories of specters and apparitions and then are frighted at them more than anybody. Now I began to take courage and to peep abroad again, for I had not stirred out of my castle for three days and nights, so that I began to starve for provision for I had little or nothing within doors but some barley cakes and water. Then I knew that my goats wanted to be milked too, which usually was my evening diversion, and the poor creatures were in great pain and inconvenience for want of it, and indeed it almost spoiled some of them and almost dried up their milk. Heartening myself, therefore, with the belief that this was nothing but the print of one of my own feet, and so I might be truly said to start at my own shadow, I began to go around again and went to my country house to milk my flock. But to see with what fear I went forward, how often I looked behind me, how I was ready every now and then to lay down my basket and run for my life, it would have made anyone have thought I was haunted with an evil conscience or that I had been lately most terribly frighted. And so indeed I had. However, as I went down thus two or three days, and having seen nothing, I began to be a little bolder, and to think there was really nothing in it but my own imagination. But I could not persuade myself fully of this till I should go down to the shore again, and see this print of a foot, and measure it by my own, and see if there was any similitude or fitness, that I might be assured that it was my own foot. But when I came to the place, first it appeared evidently to me, that when I laid up my boat, I could not possibly be on shore anywhere thereabout. Secondly, when I came to measure the mark with my own foot, I found my foot not so large by a great deal. Both these things filled my head with new imaginations and gave me the vapors again to the highest degree so that I shook with cold like one in an ague, and I went home again, filled with the belief that some man or men had been on shore there or in short, that the island was inhabited, and I might be surprised before I was aware, and what course to take from my security I knew not. Excellent writing. It's no wonder the passage is so famous. It's chilling, it's gripping, all those years alone. Suddenly you've, you have reason to believe you're not alone. You see how internally, how his, his mind races. You see the details that Defoe adds to make things plausible. He talks about the goats. 
that he needs to milk. He talks about his different houses that he's in. He talks about the way he he can't remember which way he enters his house because he's in this fog. All these details, all of this narrative that goes into this wonderful passage. This is all Defoe forging territory, carving out ground as a, a journalist turned novelist. When we think of Defoe being so animated by the idea of a man stranded on an island, we can note the irony of Defoe being himself known as one of the most garrulous men in London. He was so chatty, in fact, that he was chosen to be a spy, precisely for that reason. He was sent up to Scotland to check out what the Scottish independence forces were doing. This is not cloak and dagger of a man hiding in the shadows, listening in secret, receiving secret messages in silence. No, the idea was that Defoe was such a great talker, he could just go and tell stories, get people drunk, and they'd spill out all of their stories too. And by the end of the night, they'd probably have their arms around each other, singing, and Defoe could go home, fire up a candle, write a few thousand words back to the king to describe what the Scots were up to, and then rattle off a hundred pages of a book on some subject or other and a dozen or so political pamphlets. I'm joking about how prolific he was, but he did write more than 500 books, pamphlets, and journals. He wrote with topics like politics, crime, religion, marriage, psychology, and the supernatural. Economics was a strong subject for him, both in his writing and his life. People, including women, servants, slaves, were viewed in a commercial way, the way a shrewd businessman might assess the value of an object. His own father was a tradesman who made candles, and Defoe seems to have inherited his fondness for making money, or at least seeing the necessity of it. Defoe wrote like a mad genius, but he thought about the world, his own writing included, like someone poring over a ledger. Defoe had a very eventful life. He was born in 1659. At age five, the Great Plague of London hit, killing 70,000 people. And a year later, the Great Fire of London leveled Defoe's neighborhood, all except for his house and two others. A year after that, a Dutch fleet sailed up the River Thames and mounted an attack. Two years later, Defoe's mother died, and he was eventually sent to a boarding school. Like his father, Defoe ended up as a tradesman in an era when tradesmen were on the rise. He sold woolen goods and hosiery and wine. He ran a tile and brick factory for a while. He had eight children and loads of debts. And he was in all kinds of schemes and investments to trade wine with other countries. And somewhere along the way, he was named commissioner of the glass duty, which made him responsible for collecting taxes on bottles. And he started writing. It was a way of escaping debt, or rather, getting out of one debt before the next one took hold. And he wrote on political subjects. He had ups and downs as the political fortunes of his patrons rose and fell. He was placed in a pillory a couple of times, I think. And he was imprisoned in Newgate, which his amazing novel Mal Flanders made the most of. Does it matter what political side Defoe was on or which king he was attached to, you can look all that up if you'd like. 
I like the story that he was charged with libel for one of his political pamphlets. Even though he used all those pseudonyms, it seems like everyone figured out that it was him without much trouble. And he was convicted and sentenced to public humiliation in a pillory. So he wrote a poem, Hymn to the Pillory, which was so successful that his fans turned up and showered him with flowers and drank to his health rather than engage in the usual tradition of throwing noxious and harmful objects at him. All in all, it seems like a nice day at the pillory. I want to get to uh, his innovations as a novelist, but I don't quite want to leave politics and economics behind yet. This is where he's most criticized. And indeed, it's hard to read Robinson Crusoe today without cringing at some of the scenes with Friday and the general attitude that Crusoe slash Defoe has about the inherent rights of a white European to assert dominion over and, quote, civilize, end quote, everyone he encounters. Here's how James Joyce put it. The true symbol of British conquest is Robinson Crusoe, who, cast away on a desert island, in his pocket a knife and a pipe, becomes an architect, a carpenter, a knife grinder, an astronomer, a baker, a shipwright, a potter, a saddler, a farmer, a tailor, an umbrella maker, and a clergyman. He is the true prototype of the British colonist, as Friday, the trusty slave who arrives on an unlucky day, is the symbol of the subject races. The whole Anglo-Saxon spirit is in Crusoe. The manly independence, the unconscious cruelty, the persistence, the slow yet efficient intelligence, the sexual apathy, the practical, well-balanced religiousness, the calculating taciturnity. The beautiful and very insightful phrases in there, cutting right to the heart of the problems with Crusoe, the calculating taciturnity and unconscious cruelty, and the persistence, the slow yet efficient intelligence. It's like being ground down by this single-minded capitalist and colonialist machine, determined, determined, determined to have what it wants. And dear God, I'm trying so hard to keep contemporary politics out of this. The treatment of the subject races is indefensible. Much of Robinson Crusoe is indefensible, and Maul Flanders too. And yet, because of the times, I almost don't read for the problems, I read in spite of them. You cringe at the worst scenes, at the easy assumptions and the problematic morality. But then, there's also room to be heartened by the opposite. Crusoe struggles with the idea of subjecting Friday to social standards that might, in themselves, be questionable. The Spanish Inquisition is unjust, he recognizes, even as he's blind to what he himself is doing. It forces us to wrestle with his hypocrisy, which, for those of us more enlightened readers, is a good exercise. As Shakespeare said, "'Tis better to read and think than never to have thought at all." Okay, that's sort of a paraphrase. You know what I mean. Robinson Crusoe and Mal Flanders, and really, I should do an episode on Mal Flanders in some ways. I like that novel even better than Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe is deservedly famous, a cracking good adventure story with an astonishingly compelling narrative at the heart of it. 
I don't think Defoe was setting out to invent a new literary form necessarily. I think he wrote so many different kinds of things. He adapted his prose to the story. And that's what he's doing here. Telling this in the first person with scenes of reflection interspersed with seemingly factual journalistic accounts of survival and suspenseful suspenseful action scenes. This was just the best way to produce in the reader the effect that he wanted to produce. And the success of Robinson Crusoe gave Defoe and others the idea of producing more books like this, more novels, where you can have someone talking, a narrator, a character addressing the reader, telling a long story with lots of digressions and anecdotes and facts and ideas. And voila, the loose baggy monster, in Henry James's phrase, is born. We have a hundred and some years before the refinements of a Flaubert. Defoe is so picaresque to be charitable, and to use the phrase often associated with Don Quixote, which is probably the first novel in Europe, and which came a hundred or so years before Defoe. Defoe is so picaresque that Sir Walter Scott complained, Defoe seems to have written too rapidly to pay the least attention to his circumstance. The incidents are huddled together like paving stones, discharged from a cart, and has little connection between the one and the other. I don't know if you've read Sir Walter Scott, but he's not exactly Flaubert, rolling around the floor for days trying to find the perfect word. If he thinks that your incidents are like paving stones discharged from a cart, your loose baggy monster must be loose and baggy indeed. Scott also points out some other innovations of Defoe's. He said that Defoe created, quote, an appearance of reality, end quote, by presenting himself as a man of plain sense and including some point which ascertains the eyewitness. In an ostensibly nonfiction journalistic piece about a mob scene, for example, Defoe mixed an honest-sounding approximation. About 30 men were there, he said, with a phrase like, Six of the rabble, which persuades us with its precision. The author of this had one great stone thrown at him for but looking out of a window. So we know the mob is unreasonable. Now, this might have been contested. The mob might have been acting peacefully, for all we know. The motivation is not necessarily transparent, but the author has persuaded us otherwise by giving us this percipient character who tells us what happened and why with such precision that it seems plausible. In the end, that's the great innovation of Defoe. He's using long-form narrative prose to take us on a journey, a vessel that can go all the way across an ocean to an island. And as everyone else, all the other novelists have shown since, it's a vessel that can go anywhere in the world, to any country, any location, whether it's outer space or underwater, or whatever other locale you can imagine. But there's one place that all those subsequent novelists couldn't discover, which was the ability of a novel to explore the human mind. Defoe might not have been first, it's disputed, but in any case, every novelist writing in English who came after Defoe would know that if their territory was the human mind, 
They were not first, and they were not alone. There's a footprint on the sand. Defoe was here, too. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Daniel Defoe for pioneering yet another modern literary myth. His Crusoe was stranded by shipwreck. Poor Alexander Selkirk. He wasn't stranded by shipwreck. He boldly announced a mutiny, charged out of the ship, and then turned around to see that no one had followed and begging to be back on board. Can you guess which of those two has my empathy meter running red hot? Ah, well. Please subscribe if you haven't already. A couple of great episodes in the works, including the return of Mike Palindrome, where he and I will give you some definitive ideas about overrated books. Some clashing opinions in that one. Done with respect and gentility, of course, at least on the air. Off the air. Mike can look forward to a horse's head in his bed. Hey, he's the president of the Literature Supporters Club. It's the life he chose. After you've written your review or told your friends about us or sent around a few links to our episodes or really anything at all you might do to get the word out, just send me your address and win one of these fabulous prizes. As jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. I'm Jack Wilson. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>